This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. We spend about one-third of our life asleep, yet not all of us wake up refreshed and recharged the next morning. Insomnia is very common, and medications to help us sleep are extremely popular. But are they effective, and more importantly, are they safe? To discuss these issues regarding sleep, we are pleased to have as our guest today Dr. Michael Silber, a neurologist and sleep expert. Dr. Silber works in the Center for Sleep Medicine at Mayo Clinic Rochester. Thanks for joining us, Michael. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Before we talk about medications, what non-pharmacologic things can people use to help them get to sleep? Well, I think if we can just backtrack one step, the first question to answer is why have they got insomnia? Because insomnia is a symptom. It's not necessarily a diagnosis. And I think one can sort this out really quickly, and you don't need a sleep specialist to do that. Um, there are a series of things that one just has to consider if somebody comes with difficulty sleeping. First, in no particular order, do they have a psychiatric illness, depression, or anxiety, or acute stress? So that's the first thing I always want to screen for in a patient with insomnia. Second, are there any physical reasons that they can't sleep? And the patient will tell you the answer. And the two things you don't want to miss are restless legs and chronic or acute pain. There are other physical things, night sweats, hot flashes in perimenopausal women, nocturia, especially in older men, um, and it's easy to quickly screen for those. Occasionally, sleep apnea can present with insomnia rather than sleepiness during the day. So one wants to just be sure one hasn't found, missed secondary causes. Once one's gone through that, and it's obviously chronic insomnia disorder going for years, sometimes the patient will tell you um, how it started at a period of acute stress. Sometimes they just won't know how it started. The main line of treatment for those patients is cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia rather than medications. And it's really not difficult to do at all. And studies have shown, in the initial studies were weeks and weeks of psychotherapy. But as we understood this better, new studies have shown that really one or two short sessions can teach a patient how to do it. And it can be administered by anyone who's trained, by a primary care physician, a nurse practitioner, a physician's assistant, an RN who's trained. In addition, there are now programs online which have been tested and work as well. Um, they're books. So there are multiple ways a patient can get help. There are psychologists trained in it, but this is by far the best way to do it. Okay. Let's talk about things that people can do to help them fall asleep. Uh, the room environment, temperature, things like that. What, what should we tell our patients? Well, when we're dealing with somebody with mild insomnia who's struggling to fall asleep, we really are talking about the elements of cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. The whole term puts people off. When we have our new sleep fellows, um, th those who aren't psychiatrists, um, feel very intimidated by this. But I tell them that really all of us do cognitive behavioral therapy for our patients every day of our lives. When we have a diabetic and we educate them, an asthmatic and we educate them, we are doing exactly the same. So there's nothing really difficult or um, about any of this. this um, there are many techniques. 
Um, the, the one which probably works the best is something, again, with a long technical name of stimulus control therapy, but essentially what we're telling the patients are, if you can't sleep, the worst thing you can do is to lie awake thinking because minor problems become great big dragons in the darkness and the silence of the night, the worst time to do your worrying. And I say, you can't turn off your mind. Minds can't be turned off, so you've got to play a trick on your mind. You've got to distract yourself. So what we recommend is when you can't sleep, you estimate 30 minutes is gone. I say estimate because we tell people to move the clock and the cell phone and everything else away from the bed. Don't look at it. And I say, tell people, what difference does it make if it's 2 in the morning or 3 in the morning when you can't sleep? But when you estimate this is going to be one of those nights, the classic treatment is to get up, go to another room, and distract your mind by reading, preferably. And when you read, your mind stops worrying. And after a bit, you start yawning, and you start getting sleepy, and you go back to bed and try again. Now, there are lots of variants. Some people find that long walk back to bed wakes them fully up again and be better to do it in the bedroom. But the theory is we're trying to teach people that the bedroom is for sleep and not for wake activities, so do it in another room. But everybody's different, and one has to take into account bed partners and all the rest in deciding it. So that's one very good technique that's very important. I've got a technique I'm going to share with you. Occasionally, I will wake up in the middle of the night and, as you said, start thinking about things, a challenging patient, a busy schedule the next day, and these things kind of amplify. And I have found that by listening to music, and I've got an iPhone and I hear earphones next to my bed, I think right over the music. It doesn't help. So I've started listening to our podcasts. And they put me right to sleep. <laughs> well, I won't say anything about the quality of this podcast. This, this one might put you all to sleep immediately. Um, you know, it's so individual. It's whatever does it. Um, reading, as I said, when I talked about reading, I tell people you want to read something that's interesting enough that your mind is distracted from thinking, but not so utterly fascinating um, that you can't put the novel down. Um, so it's whatever works. If a podcast works for you, that's fine. In general, we'd say don't do work activities because they tend to alert rather than to sleep. But for some people, that might put one to sleep and then it works. For others, music might work mainly because of its relaxation approaches, which is another thing we use. Um, for me, I find relaxation techniques work best, but not physical relaxation, um, mental relaxation techniques. The classic idea is to think you're on, on a um, Caribbean island and you're lying on the beach in the sun and you can feel the sand and the wind and hear the waves. That doesn't work at all for me. There are other images which work, but certain images for some people work very well. Now, I've had patients who you know, say they need something to get to sleep. Can, they, can I prescribe a sleeping pill for them? And I go through all of the changes in sleep physiology that you mentioned. I go through all the non-pharmacologic things that they can try to improve their sleep environment. And I say, do you understand that? And they say, yeah, I do, doc. And now what can you give me as a sleeping okay. pill? So let's say we have decided we will try something pharmacologic. Let's talk about the things that are available. Let's start with melatonin. All right, well, let's start with the least harmful, melatonin. There is very little evidence that melatonin is a hypnotic. Um, patients use it. They try it. I'm actually seeing people using massive doses, which I don't like at all in recent years. I don't know why, but the dose seems to be going up. Um, the physiologic dose would be 0.5 milligrams melatonin. 
Um, we, for, if you're going to try it for insomnia, one milligram, maybe three milligrams, beyond that there is absolutely no evidence that it's really going to work. And I'm seeing people now on 20 milligrams mm -hmm. melatonin. Uh, not a lot of evidence it's harmful, but there really is very little evidence that it's a hypnotic and maybe a circadian um, restabilizer for jet lag and things like that. Okay. Let's go up the ladder a little bit. How about sedating antihistamines like uh, diphenhydramine or Benadryl? No question that they work. Everybody knows that because, of course, one of the side effects is sleepiness. Um, there's good scientific reasons why they work. I mean, they act on histamine neurons, which are alerting neurons. So good science behind it, and they work. They're not major hypnotics, but younger people who use it, sometimes occasionally, find that they work, and as long as they're not getting side effects, seems no harm in it. In older people, we've got, we start getting side effects from the antihistamines, and probably not ideal, can cause confusion in older people. But again, it's very individual. Um, so I think intermittent use of an, a sedating antihistamine, if people find it's been helpful, no harm in it at all, in younger people anyway. And I share your concern with the elderly, and especially with elderly men, which may put them into somewhat urinary retention due to the anticholinergic effect. Mm -hmm. So you have to be careful there, too. All right, let's take another step up the ladder. The old antidepressant, trazodone. Well, trazodone became um, fashionable in the late 1990s or so when we began to realize all the harmful effects of the classic benzodiazepines. Going back a little historically, I mean, the first half of the 20th century, the main hypnotics that were used were the barbiturates. Um, then when the terrible harms of these drugs were, were realized with the very low ratio between therapeutic efficiency and toxicity and the addiction potential, we moved to the benzodiazepines. The first one was chlordiazepoxide in the early 50s. But by the 90s, it was realized these drugs don't work all that well. They have rebound effects. They're addictive. And so there was a move away from it. Let's move to the sedating antidepressants. And trazodone came on the market. Trazodone is a hypnotic. It is sedating. And for some people, works very well. can cause rarely priapism in men. And one really has to warn them about it, even though that's an exquisitely rare complication. And for some people, that's the, that's the right thing to do. Um, the um, metazapine is another sedating antidepressant. And for people who have depression as well as insomnia, these drugs may be excellent. A combination of an SSRI in the morning and trazodone at night for might be the right way to go. So, yes, there's a role for it. But again, the studies of trazodone in non-depressed um, insomnia patients are very few, and the data isn't all that good. Okay. You mentioned benzodiazepines. How are they as a class? Well, I think we probably need to talk about the non-benzodiazepine, benzodiazepine receptor <laughs> agonists. In other words, the Z drugs, the drugs such as Zolpidem um, and the others in that class, Zaloplon, Izopiclone, are the three drugs with various half-lives. They are certainly the most common hypnotics used. They are certainly safer than the classic benzodiazepines. Very little rebound, um, probably less addictive potential. Um, but how effective are they? They certainly work, but regrettably the studies have shown they're not fantastic hypnotics, increase sleep by perhaps 30 minutes a night. They are the data, but that's a good number to remember. Um, better than placebo, but certainly not miracle drugs. They have downsides. First, um, a certain percentage of people will get strange behaviors at night. 
sleepwalking, sleep eating, and sleep driving, in fact. The other thing that happens is amnestic reactions. If, they get, if you get a phone call in the middle of the night after taking these drugs, sometimes in the morning you have no memory at all of what you said. When they're used on plane flights, some people do very strange things and don't remember them. If you talk to flight attendants who, travel, who fly on um, long-distance flights to Europe, as we did just recently, and asked, what is the worst thing you, you deal with? And the answer is always people taking Zolpidem at night and trying to get up and open the door and things like that. Um, now, that doesn't happen most op very often, um, but amnestic reactions and strange behaviors can occur. I'm not trying to put you off using these drugs, but you have to warn patients about them, about these things. Some people get drowsiness in the morning, cognitive impairment, and um, some incoordination in the morning. And recent work has suggested that women are more sensitive than men and definitely older people than younger people. As a result, for instance, the recommended dose of Zolpidem in women has been dropped from 10 to 5 milligrams. And certainly over the age of 60, one starts with 5 milligrams if one's going to use them. Now, these drugs are on the lists of drugs to be avoided in the elderly, and most geriatricians don't like them at all. And certainly, they are not first-line therapies, especially for older people. But, of course, there are older people who are very, very disturbed by their insomnia, and you've worked through it, and it really is chronic insomnia, and you've got the right diagnosis. And there may be an indication for using these drugs carefully and watching them. I just don't think we can have blanket deni um, denials of use of these drugs in people who may benefit from it. But if you're going to use them, especially in older people, you can't just put someone on them and send them off. One has to say, let's reassess in a month how you are doing, are there side effects, and if they're not working, one stops them. When people say, Should, can, can I use it for jet lag? I say, if you want to, the first thing to do is use it at home first. Yeah. Second, when you fly, see somebody's relative or someone is flying with you. Don't use it by yourself on a transatlantic flight. And be aware there are risks. There are people who have woken up in Europe at 4 in the afternoon and have no idea what they did from the, when the plane landed at 9 until 4. Um, again, the majority don't get these side effects, but you have to warn patients and they have to be careful. I'm going to finish up with one last question that may or may not have an answer, but this happens often. A colleague of ours retires. We inherit their patients. A patient or more is taking a sedative hypnotic on a nightly basis, appears to be doing well, and wants us to continue the refills. How should we manage that problem? Well, very often the way, not you personally, your colleagues manage to send them to us for an opinion. <laughs> so I'm very familiar with that problem. I like that idea. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think the first thing to, that we would do is, is the diagnosis correct? Um, second, is it different, is, do the, does the patient perceive it helping him or her? And are there any side effects? If there aren't, I think one can discuss with the patient whether they wish to try coming slowly off it and trying cognitive behavioral therapy or something else alternatively. But if they say, no, I've been on this for five years, it's working perfectly, I had horrible insomnia before, I have no insomnia now, I have no problems at all in recommending they just continue to use it. Um, again, I am really opposed to blanket rules saying over this age, this drug cannot be used. It means you, I see it as use with caution, think about alternatives, inform the patient, um, be sure that side effects are monitored, but we don't have blanket rules. So my advice in those situations is almost always 
go ahead. You've got my blessing to continue using it. Good. Then I've been doing it correctly. Thank you. <laughs> I'm sure you have. <laughs> We've been talking about sleep disorders with Dr. Michael Silber, a male clinic physician in neurology and sleep medicine. Michael, thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure. I've enjoyed helping. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week.